In this episode, we have our good friend Kimberly Anderson on again. Uh, Trigger warning, we will be talking about suicide, both suicide safety and prevention. Yeah, we had a listener that we found out recently died by suicide, and we thought this was a good opportunity to do an episode on the subject. So please join us for that. Uh, Coming right up. Mm -hmm. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Lesbian, the podcast about an ex-Mormon gay girl trying to figure out her life. Mm-hmm. I am Mary. I'm Shelly. Mary, real quick, before we get into the meat of this episode and bring Kimberly Anderson on, I wanted to make a quick announcement. Okay. This July 10th through the 19th is the Damn These Heels Queer Film Festival. And because of hashtag tender mercy COVID-19, <laughs> this year, all of the films will be streaming during the festival, so you don't have to actually be in Utah to partake. Oh, that's good. But this is the coolest part. One of the films was produced and directed by a couple of our faithful LDL listeners, Ooh. Maddie and Zoe. Shout out to Maddie and Zoe. The name of the film is Same Sex Attracted, and it's a documentary about LGBT students at Brigham Young University. How do they watch said film at the film festival? Well, you can get your tickets now by going to utahfilmcenter.org. Click on the Damn These Heels link, and then here you can read more about the festival. Scroll down to the Visit the Individual Film page link, and then you click that, and you can see all the films are going to be shown during this amazing festival. I was looking at it earlier, and there's so many good ones. I think you and I should get a festival pass so we can see all of them. Okay. Yeah, but don't forget to check out Same Sex Attracted. Going to support our LDL filmmakers, Maddie and Zoe. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, remind us of the dates once again. It is July 10th through the 19th, but if you go now to utahfilmcenter.org, you can go ahead and get your tickets. All right. Everybody should do that. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Yep. Okay. Moving on. You know, we were talking earlier about a listener who we learned recently died by suicide. Right. We felt like we needed to say something, and we weren't sure what to do or say. Absolutely. So whose name popped in our head? Uh, duh, Kimberly Anderson. Kimberly Anderson, exactly. Uh, Kimberly is an expert in this very field, you guys. So we really wanted to get her expert opinion on here. We love Kimberly. She's such a warm person and is knowledgeable on this subject. So without further ado, Kimberly... Welcome to our show, and we wanted to bring you on specifically to talk about suicide education and prevention. Thank you for all the warm things you've said, all the lovely things you said. Uh, It is interesting that one of the reasons I became a therapist was specifically to address suicidality, suicidal ideation, and suicide education and prevention. And so that's why I was actually saddened to hear of the news of why you asked me to join you but certainly uh, enthusiastic and willing to jump in and offer the things that I can share that I've learned over the past several years. I wear a a suicide tattoo on my left wrist, the semicolon. And I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the semicolon project. You can look it up, semicolonproject.com. Semicolon is the, the only piece of punctuation in the English language that indicates the writer could have stopped, but that they chose to continue that line of thinking. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the semicolon, it's a remarkably powerful symbol for those who have made the conscious decision to continue after struggling and battling with suicidal ideation. Nice. And surrounding my the semicolon, I wear the initials of three people who we've lost and three people who are still, still here. Very cool. Oh, wow. I have just right out of the gate here, I had never heard of the term suicide ideation. 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 See, there, that's just how knowledgeable I am. I can't even say it right. Mm-hmm. What is that? 
So the, the, the clinical term is actually suicidal ideation. Gotcha. So if you said suicide ideation, it's just you are thinking about suicide broadly. Mm-hmm. But if you say suicidal, now it's a verb. Instead of the noun, it's a verb. Okay. So if you're having suicidal ideation, that means that you're thinking about internally your own issues with suicidality. Gotcha. Or actively uh, being suicidal. Now, within the idea of suicidality or suicidal ideation, you have active suicidal ideation and passive suicidal ideation. And we can talk about that more as the podcast goes on. Yeah. We should also mention um, that this will probably be triggery for a lot of people. Thank you for saying that. I think it's important that the listeners know that this is uh, potentially triggering information or content. Uh, we will be getting a little personal. Um, it'll be heavy. I want to make sure that listeners have uh, an awareness of what we're going to be talking about today. And if they need to pause the podcast, if they want to listen to it with a supportive person, uh, specifically as we get in later into the, some of the safety planning, you may want to make sure you're with someone to form your own safety plan later on. I want to make sure that there is an, uh, an absolute atmosphere of safety and calm as the individual listens to this podcast. And if they can't listen to it in that frame of mind, they might want to reach out to someone to listen to this with them. Uh, I do not want the, the podcast episode to be triggering. If you feel suicidal ideation, if you feel some uh, triggering energy show up in yourself, take a pause, take a walk, do some breathing to kind of, you know, reduce your emotional state, bring it back into alignment. But most of all, if you can't listen to this and not uh, get activated, go ahead and pause and just turn it off and come back to it later on when you can. Yes. Thank you for that. The last thing we want to do is cause harm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Safety first, always. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing I was wondering as we were talking about doing this podcast is when did the terminology switch from committing suicide to other terminology like death by suicide for instance right so it's probably it's a recent shift actually and i became aware of that shift when i was in graduate school and i've i'm only been graduated just uh just over a year now the death by suicide versus committed suicide death by suicide means that you have given into your body has succumbed to something that was out of your control and that's really more of a kind of a holistic way to think about suicidality and suicidal ideation. This is something that you battle. This is a disease. This is a condition. This is not something that people choose to be suicidal. When you say the phrase committed suicide, it's really kind of some shaming language. It's kind of some guilting language. Uh, it kind of gives a burden of, of choice placed on the person who has passed. And if you work with enough people who have either battled suicidality or who have died by suicide, you understand that they didn't choose this. Yeah. And they only acted in their final moments out of desperation. Right. And there's also the terminology that everyone is used to commit a sin, commit a crime. And to say commit suicide, I think, would imply that this is a wrong choice, a sinful choice. It's it's criminal. It's something that you're doing on purpose because you're a bad person. Right. You take away the judgment from it. Exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing that anybody that knows me now uh, understands very clearly that if, that if people use joking phrases like, oh, I just want to die, or I just want to kill myself, or I'm going to blow my head off, I say, oh, wait a second. When I hear that language, I'm going to pause whatever conversation I'm in. I'm going to pause the conversation. And I'm going to turn to you right now and I'm going to say, tell me how you're feeling. Mm. Are you thinking about dying by suicide? Do you have an active plan to die by suicide? Yeah. I'm going to stop everything. Even if I really know that person, I'm going to really stop everything and slow it down 
Because in that moment, they might be reaching out. We're going to talk about suicidal communication and suicidal communication difficulties later on too. But when I hear those messages, even kind of in joking and passing, I really shut it down and I say, okay, let's talk about this for a minute. And my friends now understand that this is a, uh, an area of specialty for me, an area of um, specific training and education. And they know that I don't take this language uh, lightly. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I shut everything down. I say, look, you know, please don't use those phrases in jest, in sarcasm, in joking around, because I really want you to have those phrases ready to go when you really, really need them in that moment of reaching out. Because I need to know that you're using them with deliberation and you're not using them in passing conversation. Because if I hear you using them, I will shut it down. Because yeah. I know that the suicidal person has a difficulty reaching out. And so every time that they do, I will stop everything and I will sh- make sure that we go into kind of a little mini assessment. Mm-hmm. So Kimberly, you are the expert here. So, you know, we just kind of want to let you go. Let's talk. <laughs> Turn you loose. Not, not let you go, as in, it's been nice talking to you. <laughs> no, let's keep you on and turn the time over, <laughs> oh, as Brother Ben would say. <laughs> Got to work in those Mormon things. Well, so, so there is some danger involved with that, but I will take this responsibility seriously. I really want this to be an episode that people can refer out to anybody in any context. So we'll try and keep the, the levity and the joking kind of to a minimum. And I know that it's going to get heavy enough that we might need to crack a joke. Sure. So we're all internally, we're all 14-year-old boys who just are dying to make a fart joke. (laughs) I get to go first. Or bust on a Mormon. You pick. Whatever. Whatever. (laughs) Whatever you're into. (laughs) So one of the things that that I like to share is a couple years ago, I was the vice president of Affirmation for about six months. And I resigned mid-year because Affirmation took some money from the church for suicide prevention and education. Mm. And I resigned over that money, being specifically earmarked for uh, this, this work that we wanted to do. That being said, I don't want that to be the controversy that this podcast hinges on. Rather, I want to emphasize the work that we at Affirmation had chosen to start, and that was a suicide education and prevention effort, largely by teaching our members about a module called, or a modality called QPR. QPR is essentially CPR, but for individuals who are suicidal. If you're around people who are experiencing suicidality, expressing suicidal communications, QPR will train the individual how to listen to that person. It will train that person how to ask a hard question. Q, that's the question part of QPR. QPR will teach that individual who's listening to persuade that individual to stick around just a little bit longer. P stands for persuade. And then the person doing the, the persuading can then give them references to under other individuals who can take it from there. So QPR has three components, questioning, asking the hard question, and that hard question is this. Are you planning to die by suicide? Do you have an active plan to die by suicide? Have you ever given some serious thought to dying by suicide? That's the question. And if you can't ask that question without your heart just going bursting out of your chest and without making it all of a sudden about you, Mm -hmm. then don't ask the question. Just try and stay with that person and keep them safe. But Mm -hmm. really what you need to be doing if you're going to engage in suicide prevention efforts with individuals are get some training so that you can ask the hard question. Yeah. If you have a hard time listening to that answer and not making it about you, you have to stay with the person. This is still about them. This is not about you. If you have a hard time with that, then get some additional training. Uh, or make sure that you're just with that person until they can be safe with other people who are trained. 
Gotcha. Often we use the phrase, well, you wouldn't kill yourself, would you? Mm. You wouldn't kill yourself, would you? Oh, you would never do that. That would hurt me too badly. Yeah, I was going to say that probably comes a lot like, please tell me you would never kill yourself. I wouldn't know how to go on without it's, you know, it's making it's it making about it me, about not about you. the person who's in trouble. Right. Yeah, who's, who is centered in that conversation? Right, is the individual right. that's in distress centered or is the asker centered? Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need to make sure that this is never about you. This is always about the individual you're working with. Gotcha. Right. So that's, and that honestly, that suspension of ego, that's mm-hmm. kind of the main part of the learning how to uh, ask that question is suspending your ego. Yeah not making it about you. Well, that brings up such a good point. What are the best ways to persuade someone, especially when you don't really have training in it? So the the persuading is the P part, QPR, question persuade. The persuading part is really just looking for strengths. So if you've heard my prior podcast with you guys, or any of them really, I talk about shame and guilt, how I hate shame and guilt. There are ways to persuade people to stay alive without using shame or guilt, but it's kind of tricky. One of the things I like to do when I'm working with people who are actively suicidal or sharing that they're, they've had challenges, I like to ask them about their legacy. You know, what kind of a person do you want the people that you leave behind when you decide to die or when, when it's your time to go? What kind of a legacy do you want people to associate with you once you're gone? Do you want them to consider you being a helper? Do you want them to consider you being someone who was always there for them, who gave them strength, who carried them through hard times? And usually the person will say, well, yeah, I want people to, you know, remember me that way. And I'll say, well, if you want them to remember that way, you're going to need to stick around a little bit longer Mm. so that Mm -hmm. you can do those things, so that you can create that legacy. Which I feel like is a, is a completely different response than, well, if you killed yourself, what are your kids going to think? Right, because leaving your legacy, who does it center? It centers the person who you're working with. Yeah. And what would your kids think? Who does that center? Right, the kids. Yeah. Well, it actually centers the person who's asking it because they're the one lobbing on the shame. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is amazing information. It's hard to do, you guys. So QPR, and we'll talk about the QPR thing, you know, I'll kind of flesh it out in a minute, but the R stands for refer. When you get QPR training, one of the things that we teach you to do is to have a list of referral sources ready to go. Yeah. If it's 911, if it's Trevor Project, if it's Suicide Hotline, if it's a Trans Hotline, if it's, you know, whatever hotline seems to be lining up with that individual, have those resources ready. Mm. If it's a local psych hospital, if it's the county sheriff's office, if it's the police department, now that gets a little tricky. Mm-hmm. If you call the sheriff, if you call the police, that's like a last-ditch effort where the person maybe has a weapon yeah. or a means of dying that, that is potentially harmful to you in, the, in that moment. That would be really kind of the only time I would recommend calling police or sheriff or law enforcement. Otherwise, you know, if you're not with that person and they're talking about uh, their plans, the first thing you need to do is make sure that they are safe. And that would be not asking them to move the knife away from them or move the gun away from them, but to move themselves away from the object of Mm self-harm. Can you go into a different room? Can you go into a different room and shut that door? Can you go into a different room and shut that door and be on the phone with me? I'll be right there. I'll be there in five minutes. I'll be there in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then stay with them on the phone until you can get there and be with them and make sure that they continue to be safe. Right. But yeah, once they disclose to you that they have an object that that can potentially end their life, don't ask them to revisit the object. Yeah. If they're prone to impulsivity, that could be um, a moment of weakness. Also, Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. accidents happen. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure they don't engage with that object anymore, but they leave the room. That's the critical component. 
So I'm understanding this better now because if we think about CPR, that's basically keeping someone alive until the professionals can come and do the actual life-saving thing, right? Mm -hmm. So this QPR, same idea. We're keeping these people alive until we can help them get professional help because we are not professionals. That's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. Yep. Gotcha. Well done. A plus. Well, thank you. <laughs> my a only A plus I've ever freaking gotten in my life. <laughs> Took a me 46 plus. years. Oh, you're finally plus. paying plus. attention. Plus. Oh, yeah. Plus. <laughs> Love that movie. <laughs> we paused for a moment of brevity. Yeah, we did. We needed to crack a joke. <laughs> but honestly, sometimes you have to. I mean, uh, the fart yeah. joke does come in, come in very handy. <laughs> it does. But yeah, the, Q, the QPR is designed to keep the individual alive until you can get them better assessed by a trained professional. Now, this is interesting. I actually assess people for suicide nearly every day and sometimes more than once per day. Actually, if I'm getting to a point where someone needs to be further assessed, I take them into an ER mm-hmm. and have them assessed by someone with a level of training even higher than I have. Yeah. So, for example, we hear this phrase, 5150. 5150 is a a medical term. It's a medical coding number for being committed to a facility because of suicidal ideation, Mm. usually active suicidal ideation. So even though I'm a therapist, I can't legally give you a 5150 because that's not part of what I can do. That's operating out of scope of practice. Mm. But, and if I feel that you're in danger to yourself, I can transport you to a hospital I can have you assessed by a social worker that's been trained in how to assess for 5150 and how to make that happen. Law enforcement can also make that call. But ultimately, law enforcement will take you to a hospital where either a social worker or a psychologist at the hospital will assess you for higher levels of care if it's medically necessary. Mm, okay. Gotcha. So yeah, uh, CPR, uh, is the, it's the exact corollary. Mm-hmm. That's, and that's why they call it CPR for mental health and suicidality. I can only imagine that many of our listeners have been in the situation where they have felt suicidal, Mm -hmm. uh, and many more of our listeners have known someone who has either died by suicide or has had uh, that ideation. It's usually not that far removed, especially in our group of people who have left oppressive religions, who are uh, LGBTQ+, that, you know, we all know at this point that we have a higher rate of suicide. So getting this information out, and again, thank you so much. I think there's no one who listens to this podcast who doesn't need to hear this information. Well, indeed. And so that's one of the reasons why I want to make it accessible to a broad range of people. LGB people have a 30 to 45% increased risk of, of suicidal ideation wow. or risk of death by suicide. Mm-hmm. Transgender people have about a 75 to 85% higher risk. Ooh. Wow. So, so this is interesting. Uh, transgender people, actually 91, slightly more than 91% of trans people have thought about suicide actively. Mm. 51% of transgender people have made an attempt. Wow. So it's incredibly, incredibly high for trans people. I don't want to say it's frustrating because you guys have given me a wonderful opportunity, but really this is a class that I want to take about two hours and give. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I give this course for therapists who need continuing education credits. There's so much nuance and so much education to get. And actually, we're doing a a presentation like this, like the one I want to give, the full version. I'm going to be doing that next Sunday for a group of Sacramento um, post-Mormons. Oh. We're doing a Zoom chat. And so we're going to, I'll share that information with you guys if people want to attend that. Oh, for sure. Anyone can join? Yeah, we're going to make it open. Uh, I was talking with Lisa. She's the organizer. And I said, can this be, can I invite other therapists? Can I invite other individuals? Can we invite invite active members of the church? Can we invite the general population? I said, 
I may have some therapists that want to attend. She's like, yeah, oh. let's just open it to everybody. Oh, that's awesome. And we'll record it and we'll, it'll be on YouTube, hopefully. I love that. Do you know the date and time right now off the top of your head so listeners can scribble this down real quick and then we can get them some more information? You know, I think it's, it's going to be the, the 12th of July and I think we're starting at 7 p.m. And we'll repeat that at the end as yes. well. Yeah, and, and sh- hopefully it'll be in the show notes and I can send you guys a link. Yeah, it yeah, will definitely yeah, sure. be in the show notes. So yeah, QPR, that's the foundation, I guess. Uh, since we're talking in religious podcast, it's the rock of which the whole suicide prevention for me is founded. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to ask the question. And I got to tell you, when I had that first training where I had to ask that question, it was hard. Mm. What was hard about it? I was afraid of the answer. Mm. Even though it was a simulation, even though it was a tr- test, even though it was a training with clearly qualified people to teach me, it was still hard to ask that question. In fact, when I teach this course in person, I make sure that there's at least two other people there that are therapists that can scan the room to make sure that people in the workshop aren't triggered. And if they are triggered, we let them know that they can leave the room and talk to Mm -hmm. someone who can uh, assess them a little bit and find out what's going on. Right. This is heavy stuff. Yeah. So when I'm working with trans people, when I'm working with LGBT people, when I'm working with queer people, I already assume, usually as a therapist, I don't project to what my clients may or may not be thinking. But in the case of LGBT people and suicidality and oppressive religious background, I can almost guarantee you that suicidality is in there somewhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've heard you saying LGBT or LGB. It seems Mm -hmm. like, are we now from LGBTQ plus to making more of a differentiation? Yes, at times that's important to to, to differentiate because the LGB population is kind of separate as far as the data is concerned and the risk factors are concerned. Transgender people are are a separate category now for elevated risk and elevated concern. So yes, it does. Okay. And we're talking about suicidality. Absolutely. I have to break it out. And you can tease it out even further. We're talking about trans women of color, trans people of color, uh, Native American, Alaska Native people have a higher risk. Um, Certainly veterans have a higher risk. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about suicidality, knowing your population is really important because you can address their particular demographic in a specific way. Gotcha. So what would be our next step after the question, the QPR, Mm -hmm. then what? I've questioned them. I've asked the question. There's been a yes response. I'm with the individual and they're safe. I've persuaded them to stay alive. And I've persuaded them to take references or referrals from me to their place where they can go to be assessed and to become more safe. Make sure that you stay with that person until they're properly assessed Mm -hmm. or until you feel that they're kind of down from their space of danger. This might be the perfect chance to talk about safety planning because that would be, for me, that's the next thing as a clinician is to make sure that the individual who has challenges with thinking about suicide I want to make sure they have a safety plan that's fleshed out so that when they're in that space again, the individual that has suicidal ideation knows what they can do, the formula that's in place, and sometimes even rehearsed mm-hmm. to make sure that they're safe. We can dive into a safety plan now. Let's yes, do it. Absolutely. So the safety plan, this one is called the um, Barbara Stanley as the Brown Safety Plan. Okay. It's one that I use at, uh, we use a version of this that's very similar at work when I'm assessing people and creating safety plans with them. And anyone can access these on yes, their own? Yes, this, okay. this is publicly available and we'll, cool. we'll send a link in the show notes to get this. Now, one thing that's important about this, you don't need to be a clinician. You don't even need to be with a clinician or a therapist or a social worker to be creating a safety plan. You can do this on your own. Very cool. Mm. It is helpful sometimes to have somebody there with you to work through some of these questions because they can Mm -hmm. be kind of difficult. But don't think you have to be seeing a therapist to create a safety plan. And 
don't think that you have to be actively suicidal to create a safety plan. Mm, Right. It's a good point. I actually think everybody should have a safety plan. Yeah, I love that. So this is called the Patient Safety Plan Template. Do you have yours open or do you want to just kind of walk through through this with you? Why don't you walk me through it as if I was in a session with you? Okay, cool. So Shelly, so you're having some distress. We want to create a safety plan. I mean, literally, this is exactly what I do. Yeah. We want to create a safety plan so that you can have a framework of uh, people to call to, internal Mm -hmm. coping skills, kind of at the ready to make sure that when you're in that space, you have the skills and the ability to reach out if you need to. And if you can't reach out internally, what can you do? Right. So let's just start with thinking about some of your warning signs. Like, do you have any warning signs? Are there any thoughts, images, any moods, any situations, or be any behaviors that a crisis is developing? Like, what would be three of your warning signs? Well, let me point out to our listeners that this is factual information that I'm giving you. I have been there. I'm, this isn't just role-playing at this point. So I'm really going through this with you, Kimberly. Mm-hmm. What was the question again? What are the warning signs, like uh, thoughts, images, uh, situations, behaviors that could be triggering that a crisis, that you know a crisis is developing? Depression. Mm-hmm. I can feel depression on me like a thick goo. And when you feel depressed, what do you do? What motions do you go through? Do you isolate yourself? I do. I isolate. I have no motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, I sleep a lot. You can't make eye contact. I can't make eye contact. I know. And Mary knows when I start hitting the lows, it's hard for me to look her in the eyes. It's hard for me mm-hmm. to look anyone in the eyes. I want to be alone. I don't want to do anything. And I can't laugh. I can't think of anything fun to do for the day. Everything sucks. It is overwhelming to even get up and go to the restroom. I, I will sit on the couch for as long as possible because the idea of having to get up is overwhelming. And you have seen in the past when that depression, when that heavy demo, or immobilizing depression comes on, mm-hmm. that you do turn to thoughts of suicide in that moment. Yes, I absolutely have. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I can get into those times and not have those thoughts. But if I get into that super deep depression and then there's a big trigger or something that happens, that can push me over the edge. So we've got three strong warning signs, at least three strong warning signs that, that a depressive episode is in, is in motion mm-hmm. and that you're having a struggle getting out of it. Uh, in those times, have you like turned to any internal coping strategies Do you, like that don't involve other people? Do you have ways that you found can lift yourself up from the inside? Yes. The struggle is the things that work for me are things that involve forward motion, and that is so hard when you're depressed. But mm. um, getting up and going for a walk helps. Just leaving the house. Doing yard work. Doing yard work helps. Physical activity helps, which is interesting because it's the last thing I want to do when I'm depressed is move. It's almost like, you know, the thing that's going to fix me is the thing I think might kill me. Like, I will die if I have to get up. How do you manage it? How do you muster it? To you know, sometimes I don't. And sometimes I do, and I'm always I'm always thankful that I did. But the moments that I just can't do it, it's helpful if someone would say, hey, let's go for a walk, or hey, let me help you fix this thing you've been thinking about. But sometimes I can't get there on my own. Sometimes I just have to sit and just tell myself, you know what, just wait it out. You're not going to feel like this forever. Just wait it out. But, but literally getting up and walking to the mailbox and waving at the neighbor helps me. Thank you. That's incredibly vulnerable and personal. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So you do have some things that you've turned to in the past that are internal that you know will help you. Yeah. Many of the things that you talked about, going outside, changing your scenery, physical exercise, and engaging with people, those actually are part of the core DBT skills that I'm very familiar with and teach a lot. Uh, DBT is very, very effective for working with suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. I Remind also, us what those letters stand yeah, for. Yeah, what does DBT stand for? DBT stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy. 
And that's really all about mindfulness, identifying emotions, and working through those emotions. Yes. I also find that I need to pull away from some people. For example, I'm not about to get in a Facebook discussion when I'm depressed. That will for sure make it a thousand times worse. I don't care what it is. If there's some kind of disagreement on Facebook, I need to steer completely clear. Any kind of social media, which again is hard for me because I am on social media a lot because of what we do, but I have to have the boundaries of, you know what? I am not strong enough to make this fight right now. I, I can't engage with this person, even though I feel like something should be said for my own safety, I'm not going to do that today. That's some incredible self-awareness. Thank you. I'm being serious. So we are no longer role-playing. We are in this. Absolutely. That's incredibly, incredibly uh, astute knowledge of yourself. William Shakespeare said, to thine own self be true. If you know yourself, that's really super important. And Shelley said something that I thought was really cool. She knows it's going to pass. Like when she's in that mindset wait it out. I know this will pass. It's not going to be forever. So because she's had this experience before, she can remember what that is like and, and I guess, kind of wait it out, get herself out of it. That's kind of a key factor, isn't it, to kind of reflect on what this has felt like before? It certainly can be. And one of the things I want to talk about later are what we call acute depressive episodes that often turn into suicidal um, episodes. And you'll understand with some, I think, some really important clarity what's going on mm-hmm. when you're in that space. But Mary, you're absolutely right. Knowing that you've had this wave, they talk about this wave that crashes over you and you're underwater and it's stifling and you can't breathe and you can't move and you're being held down. Yes. Even I'm having a hard time breathing, just talking and thinking about that. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, same. I I can feel the feelings right now, even though I'm not depressed today. Right. Oh, that's exactly what Mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. But we know that just like the waves of the ocean, that wave will go away. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to lift your head up again and breathe. Mm -hmm. Having had been through that cycle, you know what that's like. Now, the trick is getting the safety plan in place for those times where it is, is really, really, really difficult and you're struggling and having a hard time. Right. So it's great internal coping strategies. I'm I, thrilled to hear that you know yourself so well. Tell me uh, about any people that could be distractions for you. Like name some people that could be a distraction for you when you're feeling super depressed. Like a good distraction? Yeah, positive distraction. Yeah, obviously Mary. Um, I do have to be careful not to unload too much on her because that also isn't fair. She's my partner. I love her and I don't want to drag her down with me. And it could be, I, I am sure it can be hard to live with with me because I go through this and I can kind of tell when she's sort of had enough of me. And I say that in the nicest possible way. Mary is amazing. She's wonderful. Be careful of the internalized shaming message. It can be difficult to live with me. And so... Yeah, I didn't like the way that sounded when I said it. Good, because that's another pillar of strength that you're aware of the self-deprecating language that is pushing Mm -hmm. down on your feelings of self-esteem. Yeah. Right. So Mary's good to reach out to my kids Mm -hmm. because they they say some crazy shit. So it's fun to just get on Discord that we chat with them and see what ridiculous things are coming up with because that'll always give me a little bit of a giggle. Sometimes just watching a show that's kind of funny and entertaining, that works. As far as people that I reach out to, you know, there's a good handful of people that I know personally, like I would say maybe Kimberly Anderson. (laughs) She raises her hand. Absolutely. I do have an amazing system of people that I can call if it were to become desperate. But again, I struggle with the fact that when I get that low, I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to be around people. So it's against the struggle. Let's identify this. Why do you feel that way? that you don't want to reach out? What are you afraid of? Um, I don't know if, if this is typical for a lot of people, but because I'm such an entertainer, I feel like if I 
call someone, I have to still be the entertainer. And it's exhausting to think that I need to be on my game when I talk to someone. Is it scary to feel like maybe that you need people in a different way or you're not 100%? Yeah, I can't think of anyone who I've called or talked to other than you, Mary, that I've called and said, I'm depressed today. I don't know why that is. I think maybe I just feel like I have to be the entertainer. And if you're not the entertainer, what are you? I'm the drag. Ah, so you're burdening people. Yeah, I'm burdening someone. That's the word I'm waiting for, Mm. burden. Yeah. Three key pieces of information about people who are suicidal that turns passive or just thoughts about suicidality that turn passive suicidality into active suicidality. Mm -hmm. Three things. Feeling hopeless. Mm -hmm. Feeling helpless. And feeling like a burden. Yeah. Those all go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. When those three things occur together... Yeah. It gets really dangerous for the individual, especially if they're prone to impulsivity. Mm-hmm. When you get in that funk, if you're prone to impulsivity and if you have a method, now there's there's these compounding things. It's like exponential growth. That's the word of the century. Yeah. So let me ask this question. Since Mary's the one that I typically go to because I, I, I'm okay being vulnerable, I trust her, I can tell her I, I'm depressed. But I I do get to the point where I'm self-shaming, like, oh, I'm bringing her down. But at that point, I have no one else that I feel comfortable going to. What do we do? Because I'm not the only one who has depression and anxiety, who has a partner who is basically even keel, and they feel like they're bringing them down. Mary, how does it make you feel that she considers you having the even keel? I don't disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, and I'll I'll ask you again, let's test an assumption. So would she be bringing you down in those moments of need? Would she be bringing you down? I would say uh, nine out of 10 times, no, it's not bringing me down. There have been moments where I've either been exhausted by what's going on with me or something that I haven't reacted well. That hasn't happened often, I wouldn't think. Generally, I'm fine. Like, uh, this has happened before. I see the signs. The first thing that happens is she gets really tired. She starts taking a lot of naps. Then I say... Are you maybe depressed? No, I think I'm just tired. I'm like, okay, look me in the eyes. Can you make eye contact? And she's like, oh, it's difficult. I'm like, okay, I think this is depression. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. label it. We yep. see what it is. Yeah. You know what happens? Maybe once a month, maybe a couple times a month. Yeah. It's not often. Yeah. You know, but we're able to kind of work through that together and see what it is and, yeah. and name it. And I think that is sometimes helpful. Name it to tame it. Yeah. That's the cliche that we use that is so true. Also, I just have to, I'm having like a moment, a heart tug moment, listening to you guys talk about your relationship with each other. That's like a life goal for me to have a partner like that. (laughs) Like you guys are amazing. I feel pretty lucky. I do. Absolutely. Yeah. On that similar note though, would you say that it's important to have more than one person that you can reach out to? So we're still on step three. Don't jump ahead. I know you're that oh, kid. Oh, sorry. You're the, front, <laughs> you're the front row kid. It's like, teacher, teacher, I'm next. I'm next. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So we're still on step three. We're looking for two people that provide distraction. Okay. And then if I'm making a safety plan, I actually have them write down the phone number for that person. Okay. Right on. What are some places that have provided positive distraction? You said outside. Yeah, outside. Doing gardening. Mm-hmm. Outside is where 
I just feel freer. And there's things to look at and things to think about other than just, oh, I feel like shit. I can sit outside and be like, wow, that's a really bright colored cardinal. Oh, I feel like shit. Mm. But look at that robin. I feel like shit. Oh, that wind feels good. You know, there's Well, and we have projects out there. There's yeah, like, there's oh, let me weed the garden or let me refill mm-hmm. the bird feeders. It's almost like little interruptions in the depression that kind of alleviate. It doesn't make it go away by 12 o'clock noon, um, but it does alleviate it at little bits and, until it does lift. It kind of sounds like mindfulness. Okay, so that's great. That's great awareness, actually. It's absolutely mindfulness. In fact, that's what I keep hearing you say. Uh, moments of mindfulness, moments of mindful awareness, which are DBT skills. Kids, seriously, go out and Google this. DBT is the stuff you want to know. Yeah. It like breaks her out of her like cycle or pattern, gets her out of her Mm -hmm. head a little bit. And this is like, she's just present in the moment of whatever's happening around. Yeah. So physiologically, what it's doing is it's taking her reactionary brain space away from her brainstem and it's putting it back into her prefrontal cortex, her orbital prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. It's giving her the ability to think on higher levels instead of being stuck in a lower level of thought that's based on fight, flight, or, or freeze. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. The mindfulness is a way that you can command your brain to start thinking about a solution to the problem. I love it. That's why the DBT is so important. Yeah. So it's, we've got our two people. Mm-hmm. Mary's one of them, it sounds like. Uh, now, if, if I wasn't on your list, do you, you sound like you have at least one other person that you could reach out to? You're absolutely on my list, but I, yeah, I do have a couple for sure Good. that understand that go have gone through the same thing, and so it's definitely more helpful to have an understanding ear, someone who's like, "Oh yeah, I, I get it." Right. So step four is the next level of people, three people that you can ask for help. Okay. Can you identify three people who you can ask for help? Yes. Then I would ask you to name those names, write them down. Yep. And write down contact information, phone number. And I think it's important that we write the numbers down because we may not be around our cell phone when we're having this episode. Mm, that's true. We need to have this thing handy. Yeah. That's true. We might have thrown our cell phone out the window or, I mean, be, uh, being truthful. Yeah. We may have just crushed it into a tiny ball Throwing of technology. It into the lake and an act of impulsivity. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good to write those numbers down. True. So step number five is actually talking about clinicians and urgent care services. Okay. Do you have a, a psychologist you've been working with? Do you have a therapist you've been working with? Yes. What's their name? What's their phone number? Is there an emergency contact number? Are there local urgent care services? And so we would write that down. Mm-hmm. You'd have all that right there because then this is actually part of the R in QPR, the referral. This year we're creating your R's already right here. Gotcha. And on this particular assessment, this Brown assessment, there the suicide prevention hotline, uh, 1-800-273-8255 is on this form. Got it. Number six, step number six, give me two ways that you can make the environment safe. Now, some kids that that I've done this with, they say, well, I can pick up plastic and I can recycle and I can eat vegan. And okay, now, and they kind of <laughs> distract. <laughs> yeah, these are ways I can make the environment safe. But what I'm looking for are ways that you can make your personal living environment safe mm-hmm. from self-harm or death by suicide. Yes, and that's that's where my mind went. And then when you said recycle, that's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> it's not my plan. She wants to know about it. It's your plan. Yeah, that's my plan. <laughs> Mary's plan is always recycle. Um, for me, it would be removing myself from anything sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just kind of going outside. Just go outside and sit. And this is a this is coming from a personal experience, a real experience. Yeah, I'm yeah. not making this up. This is, has happened. Yeah, um, where. She was eyeing the knives. Yeah, because that's how low it got, and my brain was just going kind of crazy. So for safety, I would just go out, go outside, and just sit in the grass. 
just ground yourself. Even if it's raining, go outside and sit in the rain. That that works for me because there again, it's something that keeps my mind distracted. These are all DBT skills, by the way. I love it. Well, it's kind of funny that you picked outside as your safety place or your place that you would go to because nature. It's like nature doesn't give a shit. Nature's just doing its thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Chipmunks are running around. Squirrels are doing their thing. Birds mm-hmm. are flying and fighting over the bird feeder. It's like they don't even know we exist. They're <laughs> yeah. just doing their thing. And it's sort of refreshing to just kind of watch that mm-hmm. and almost be a fly on their wall yeah. when you go outside. You know what I mean? Mindful awareness. It's mindful awareness. Absolutely. And it's also uh, fresh air, of course, is going to help. You know, our house here is is fantastic. It's great. But being in like a a place where I just don't want to get up from, and then it just seems smaller and smaller, and I'm more and more confined, um, makes my world even littler and littler as I'm sitting on the couch in my depression, just to get up and go outside of it and to sit outside. So it sounds like you have an identified plan. Yeah. Yeah. So then ways that I would suggest that you could make yourself safe are to identify that plan, share that with the person on your list, certainly share it with Mary. Mm-hmm. Mary, I believe, knows about the plan. She used the phrase, she's eyeing the knives. It's very common. Yeah. Uh, and so when you're getting in that depressive state, one of the things that you can do is you can say, hey, Mary, let's take care of some sharps. Mm, okay. Let's make sure the sharps are in a safe place. Uh, a lot of people lock them up. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people take them outside and remove them from the home. I have many parents that I talk to mm-hmm. with suicidal kids that use um, cutting as a uh, means of self-harm or death by suicide. They physically have to take the knives and lock them up. Yeah. And that's okay. Like, that's not anything to be ashamed of. Job number one is to keep your kids and keep yourself and keep your spouse, partner, loved one, parent, keep them alive. Right, right. That's job number one, and there's no shame or guilt involved in that. Absolutely. Good point. So you've given me way more than two ways that you can make your environment safe. Mm-hmm. This last question is actually kind of the, it's the keystone of our safety plan, shall we say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Finish the following sentence. The one thing that is most important to me and worth living for is blank. Mm. The one thing that is the most important to me and worth living for is blank. My future, I would say. Yeah. Because that encompasses all things. It encompasses Mary. It encompasses my children. It encompasses grandchildren, retirement, all the things that I know are good out there that I will someday get to. I love that. That forward-thinking optimism is one of the strongest protectors against suicide that you can possibly have. What's that like for you to hear those reasons to live for and have you being included in that? What's that like for you, Mary? Well, those are great reasons. I was glad that I wasn't the only reason and that the future Mm. is such a great reason. I feel fine to be part of that list. I think that's a great list and there's a lot of possibility on that list. I'm just curious though, what are some of the responses you've received, Kimberly? Mm. Pets. Okay. Mm. Mm -hmm. Pets are a big one. Fear is a big one. Shame is a big one. If someone gives you that answer, I would be ashamed if I if I died by suicide. Do you try to talk them into a different reason, or is that that's their answer and that's it? I I am curious about it. I explore it. Tell me about the shame. Where is that coming from? How does it affect you? Can you identify the source of the shame? How long has the shame been going on? Mm-hmm. And really, if, if it's like shame, then we have a whole another level of like treatment we can dive into over su- um, subsequent you know therapy sessions. It's actually a lovely thing to hear. Mm-hmm. We're identifying shame as a protective factor. Well, for me, and I'll be really vulnerable, one of the reasons that I didn't die by suicide is because I was afraid of screwing it up mm. and hurting myself and being shamed by my mother. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. That was in my head constantly when I was a, a young teenager. Wow. I was, I was afraid to try something and screw it up 
and be judged and shamed by my mother. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> That's a lot. It will, in, in, in kind of an inverted way, mm-hmm. keep that, that shame and guilt kept me alive. Hmm. And in looking back in the moment, I'm, I'm sad that that was the case. And now looking back, I'm glad that was the case because I'm really glad that I'm here right now. Yeah, right. so are we. Yeah, thank you. One of the things that we do when we're working with clients is we have them identify their passive suicidality, scale of zero to 10. Mm. We have them identify their active suicidality, scale of zero to 10. I want to talk about the difference between active and passive suicidality. Yes, okay. please, because I'm not sure what that is. Okay, passive suicidality is like an, like when you're in neutral. Mm-hmm. Car's in neutral or it's in park, and you're just kind of idling along, but you're not in drive, you're not in gear. Passive suicidality with the car at the idle would be like a zero or a one. Okay. I feel like I've been there. Yeah, so if you're smashing the gas, you're like, then you're like, the higher the revs are going, the higher the noise is going. That's the higher this internal passive suicidality is. Mm-hmm. Passive suicidality doesn't involve a plan. Mm-hmm. It does not involve a, a means or a method or intent. So passive suicidality, when it gets to that 8, 9, 10, then it gets really concerning that it can turn into active suicidality. Mm, gotcha. Active suicidality is where you have a plan, where you've gathered objects, where you've considered dates, where you've considered locations, where you've considered who's going to find you, Mm. where you've considered if you're dying by suicide on a specific date, an anniversary, something important. Um, Active suicidality is is an actual attempt. You know, whatever your method may have been, that's active suicidality. When you're experiencing active suicidality, that's when you probably do need to get law enforcement involved because you could end your life prematurely and have it be an accident. Now, one thing I want to make sure that people understand here, we talk about a thing called self-harm. Often it's cutting, scratching, bruising, um, scraping, hitting yourself uh, in an act of what we call non-suicidal self-injury. Non-suicidal self-injury, NSSI for short. Very common method of self-harm is by cutting. Really super common Mm -hmm. method is cutting. Uh, And so one of the ways that you can make your environment safe is to remove those objects that you've been hoarding, that you've been um, using to cut with. Uh, Often it can be an eraser on a pencil. You can put and give yourself an eraser burn on your forearm. Cutting or non-suicidal self-injury is not considered active suicidality. It's not considered a suicide attempt. Okay. So if you're making cuts on your body in an attempt to control pain in an attempt to incite pain. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's to prove you're still alive. I hear uh, people talk a lot that they cut to make sure they're not dead. Mm. They want to feel something. They want to feel something or they want to see blood dripping down their arm. Now, this is incredibly triggering for a lot of people. So again, if you're feeling some activation, take a pause and take a breath. Do the things that Shelly suggested. You know, go outside, walk in the grass, ground yourself in the bare feet. Uh, Do the thing that you can reduce this anxiety that you might be hearing talking about non-suicidal self-injury. But it's a reality for many, 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 many people. Mm. Unfortunately, uh, there are many times when non-suicidal self-injury, cutting, for example, the cutting goes too far, it goes too deep, you're near a major artery or a vein, and you can bleed out and you can die by cutting accidentally. Right. Mm. Wow. So when I'm talking with the client about non-suicidal self-injury or self-harm, and specifically we're going into cutting, I'll say, now where are you cutting? Tell me where you're cutting. Mm. You know your mm-hmm. you know your major you know, blood systems, right? You know your major veins and your arteries, right? Do you know how to self-care? Do you know wound care? We talk about wound care very, very um, openly and very non-judgmentally. Um, often they will go to their um, people that are in their support network to get stitches. 
mm-hmm. or to get a butterfly or to super glue cuts together to quit from bleeding. Mm. Well, and we just have to really normalize that because uh, there's lots and lots of cutting by uh, young adults. Uh, usually, the cutting will go away around their mid twenties, late twenties, but not always. Mm-hmm. As they identify and gain more coping skills, the, the self-harm will go away. Right. So the passive suicidality is just thoughts of suicide. On any given day, between 60 and 80% of the population experiences passive suicidality. So a, lo- a lot of times I will wake up in the morning and be like, I just don't want to do today. I don't. <sighs> it's the hopelessness. It's the, oh, God. I'm not thinking about, you know what, I I might do something to myself today, but sometimes I feel like, yeah, if I wasn't here, whatever. Usually when it's at me, it's been at night. And it's like, gosh, I just hope I don't wake up tomorrow. Yeah. Where do you put that in? That's, you know, nobody's making exact plans, but I, for one, I'm like, it'd be fine if I wasn't here tomorrow. So that's, that would be considered passive suicidality. Okay. And if somebody indicates that to me in an assessment, I would say something like, well, in this, in these uh, moments of, you know, thinking about this, have you gotten a plan together? Mm-hmm. Have you I, I gathered your objects? Have you yeah. considered dates? I've wondered if because of the quarantine, if, if anything has changed or rates have gone up because I don't like to be alone personally. Yeah, I think it's been hard. I know for sure a lot of our listeners have been like, I want to go back to work. I need people. Mm-hmm. I can't do this another day. What do you say about that, Kimberly? Well, we talked about this in the last podcast, finding your community and reaching out to them at all costs. Mm-hmm. Reach out, mm-hmm. reach out, reach out. And if you get to that place where you can't reach out, call one of the hotlines. Yeah. And I've got a list of hotlines ready to go. We can talk about those at the end. Great. But yeah, if you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling alone, if you're feeling overwhelmed at just the loneliness, then reach out. Yeah. And know you're not alone. Absolutely. And I want to talk about rehearsing just for a moment. Mm-hmm. When you're in a space where you're safe, but you know you have thoughts of suicidality in your, in your system, in your person, locate the, the, the hotline that you would call in that moment of significance or in that moment of reality. Mm. Identify that hotline and call them and say, hey, my name is Kimberly. I, I am a member of the transgender community. I'm a queer woman. I know at some point I'm probably going to need to call you guys. Tell me what that call would look like. I, I kind of want to know what to expect when I call the Trans Lifeline or the Trevor Hotline. What would that be like? What kind of a conversation would it be? What a great idea. That could take some of the fear out. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're really down low and then you're thinking, well, I've never called before. They don't care or whatever the situation is. If you've already made that call and established some sort of um, confidence in that, yep. wow, that's an amazing idea. And yeah. no one's going to answer the phone and be like, well, are you just joking? Is with this us a real or? emergency? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're there for everything. Hopefully, yeah. a crisis worker has been trained better than that. <laughs> oh God, oh, yes. So. That being said, there are some. I have heard some experiences of people reaching out to crisis lines and having bad experiences. Mm-hmm. So that would be like reaching out to a crisis line when you're not in a crisis would be a good thing because if you're going to find one that's not really welcoming or not really ready for who you are, yeah. find a different crisis hotline. Uh, that's good advice. Yeah, you don't want to have a shitty experience in the moment of pain. Right. You want to have a, a helping, beneficial, healthy experience. Absolutely. So speaking to rehearsal, you know, we've worked on your safety plan. Mm-hmm. You have the people that provide positive distraction. You have the people that you can ask for help. When you're not in crisis is the time to call those people and say, hey, Susie, Joey, dad, mom, I'd like to make sure that you understand you're part of my safety plan. I consider you someone I can reach out to help for. Yes. I may be... At some point in a moment of crisis or in a moment of need, and I need you to know that I might be calling you, would that be okay? Ask them for permission. Oh, yeah. See how they're going to respond. If they're a person that's going to be like jump into shame and guilt, that may not be the right person to have on your safety plan. Right. So you get a kind of a chance to, to rehearse what that would look like for that person if you were in that moment of need. 
What if you know someone who might benefit from having people on a list like this? Would it be too weird or forward to say, hey, if you ever need someone to be part of your support system, please consider me? Or how would a conversation like that go? Just like that. Okay. <laughs> Just exactly like that. So the, the interesting thing about people that experience suicidality, they're afraid to talk to people because they're afraid of being judged. And if they know that you are a safe person, they will reach out to you. Got it. Oh, thank you for asking. Most people, when you ask them the, the question, right, part of the quest, QPR question, most people, when they're asked the question, they're relieved that they're being asked the question. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank God, someone's asking me the question. Yeah. So they don't have to approach someone right. else. The, yeah. the burden's not on them anymore, yeah. Mm. Wow. So rehearse the Trevor hotline, rehearse the trans lifeline, rehearse your safety network, mm-hmm. rehearse those people that you might reach out to. Uh, and even that conversation can be tremendously healing. Oh, I didn't know you were in so much pain. Would you like to talk about that? How can I help you in that moment of need? Mm-hmm. And know this, if you're one of the people on the uh, that's being asked to be on a list, know that that is a source of honor. Yeah. You are a source of trust. That's true. You are a figure in that person's life that they do want to live for. You are seen as a pillar of of safety for that person's life. Now, that comes with some heaviness and some responsibility. But I talk about suicide education and prevention really as a web. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep myself alive by keeping you alive. If I'm part of your safety plan, if I'm part of your safety network, then I myself am going to have an increased chance of staying alive. Absolutely. So it really is a, a web, a community that can help each other stay alive. You said community, and I love that. For me and for many others, having a sense of community is what is so needed to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. To find community within your own issues and your own trauma and knowing the web, like you've said, that you can reach out to and everyone helps each other. It's like, yeah, guess what? Nope, you are not alone. Well, yeah. we used to live in groups. We were nomadic and we traveled around, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we still need that. That's in us. I think it is a lot of the reason why there's so many issues, especially right now during the COVID lockdown, people have lost their community. It seems like it's more difficult to maintain at the very least, yeah. Yeah. especially in COVID. Yep. Right, right, right. Shelly, I, I, on a serious note, I just want to tell you how proud I am of you for the vulnerability and the transparency from sharing some of your own challenges. That's, that's huge. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, mean, I and think I, that a lot of our success of our podcast is rooted in that, frankly. Well, and so, yeah, you guys know that. I just hope that I can help people while I'm helping myself and getting help from others that I can help people as well. And often that's exactly how it works. I can't tell you how much healing, personal healing I've had from being a therapist and working with other people. Oh, I'm sure. I was going to talk, though, about passive suicidality and this idea that we scale things. I'll just talk about myself really personally and vulnerably. I think for years I kind of had a passive suicidal ideation score of maybe two and a half to... Oh, three or three and a half. I mean, it was just always there. It was always on the table. It was just something in the back of my mind. At times, my passive suicidality would spike to an eight or to a nine. In those moments, I can anticipate those days. I can plan to be in a suicidal funk those days. Knowing that in those times in the past, I have had ways that I could have died by suicide, I can make my environment safe by removing those items from my environment. Gotcha. I I can share this uh, quite honestly. Several years ago, I was experiencing some heightened suicidality. At that time, I had a handgun um, in my Airstream with me, and uh, I took apart the handgun and I sent the barrel of the handgun to a friend of mine uh, in Seattle. 
and she held on to to that barrel of, of my gun for me for a long time. Wow. Mm. So my my baseline of suicidality was maybe a two and a half to three and a half for several years, long time, mm-hmm. knowing that it spiked, taking care of that, understanding myself. So just that process of awareness and growth for me is an indicator that I'm recovering from some significant trauma. Did you have that in a plan to dismantle your gun before you dismantled your gun? Like when you were in a healthy state, had you thought about the gun and thought, you know what, if I ever nosedive, I probably shouldn't have this around? Well, okay, so I can speak to that very plainly. Uh, Yes, as a matter of fact. So I had my handguns in one spot. I had the ammunitions in another spot. Mm -hmm. Uh, The magazines were full. They were loaded. And they were in a different location from where the handguns were. I also knew that to get to the ammunition, I would have to go in this cabinet underneath underneath this bed and move a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I knew that to get to the handgun itself or the guns at time I had at one time I had two nine millimeters mm-hmm. to get to the handguns would require me to move a bunch of other stuff and get into the bed and the airstream from a different direction. Lots and lots of pain in the ass factor. Right. Uh, we talk about friction. Friction sometimes there was a lot of friction to get to the, both the gun and the ammunition. Mm-hmm. Friction in different directions. Yeah. And I knew that in the mode of going and getting the gun or the mode of going and getting the ammunition, I would have forced myself to go through a sequence of events that would have required me to use my prefrontal cortex. Mm, Gotcha. And there would have been a lot of friction. And I would have probably by that time uh, eliminated the impulsivity. I would have caught myself and I would have said, now, Kimberly, you're you're making motions here that are kind of significant. Yeah. What are you going to do here? Now, I will say this. In that moment of disassembling the gun, actually, I racked the slide. I checked to make sure the magazine was empty, that the barrel was empty. I racked the slide and I pulled the trigger. And between me pulling the trigger and hearing the, there is a space there that's silent. Mm -hmm. And that space is microscopic in length. But in that moment of doing it, Mm. it felt like a really long space. It felt like time really slowed down. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine in that moment, I had kind of an empathy building experience of, the person that may have used a gun yeah, and what they may have heard um, before they died. Mm. Now, in, in suicide education and prevention, we teach not to talk about methods, mm-hmm. but that's my experience. Yeah. Uh, and I feel comfortable sharing, sharing that, that that click and that pause uh, was a real wake up for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was scary. Yeah. yeah. I didn't feel impulsive. I wasn't suicidal. I was really in safety mode. I'm checking the magazine and the gun was safe. Right. And it still scared me. Yeah. I bet. What is the thinking about not talking about methods? We don't want to plant ideas. Okay. Here's the other thing I know about people that are suicidal. They're very resourceful. Mm-hmm. If they really want to die by suicide, they're going to figure out a way. Yeah. And so I don't need to plant seeds. I don't need, no need to talk about methods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes the talking about methods can be triggering and can push someone into a, uh, an episode of uh, impulsivity. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to talk about that I mentioned earlier that has been a huge moment of of awareness and education for me, both personally and clinically, is this phrase or this uh, term called acute depressive episodes and how it relates to suicidality. Okay. So acute depressive episodes, there's not a lot of research about this, but people that do a lot of suicide education know about this very clearly. Uh, The acute depressive episode is just that. It's acute, which means it's very severe. It's very debilitating. Uh, depressive means you go into this depressive state, just you plow into that space where you talked about earlier, Shelley, this debilitating, paralyzed uh, depression. Mm-hmm. But then we have this word called episode, and it only lasts a certain amount of time, five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour or two at the most. 
maybe three or four hours if you're in a really, really bad one. Hmm. There's a lot of um, ideas that, that this acute depression, when you're in that acute depressive state, your brain goes to its go-to, it has its default um, addictive behavior. Hmm. So whatever addictive behavior is your go-to, whether it's shopping, alcohol, drugs, um, hmm. sex, harmful sex rather than just sex, yeah. or thinking about suicidality, thinking about self-harm. When you're in that acute depressive episode, your brain literally has just shut down. Your prefrontal cortex, your higher thinking, your executive functioning has shut down, and you're now in your brainstem. And whatever groove of uh, addiction is the deepest, that's where you go to. Mm. So often people will say that they have, you know, d- depression shopping or depression sex or whatever. Eating. Depression eating, yes. Very common to binge when you're depressed. Also very common to think about suicidality when you're depressed. Mm. Uh, and so if you're in that one of those people that when you get depressed, you start thinking about self-harm, you start having self-deprecating thoughts, you start having a lot of negative self-talk. Mm-hmm. Then you're kind of in that space where if you have that means, where you have that motive, where you have that intent, if you're in that deep depressive episode, you can um, succumb to impulsivity and die by suicide. Mm, Yeah. When I understood that this was something that has a triggering event, Mm -hmm. knowing what my triggering events were, knowing what my addictive behavior was, uh, and knowing that it's only going to last a short period of time, I was like, wait a minute, how come we don't talk about this more? Yeah. Can I anticipate those triggering events? Well, if they're date sensitive or, you know, period of the year, uh, yeah, I can anticipate that time. Mm -hmm. For me, my largest day of acute depressive episodes has always been Mother's Day. Yeah, Mm. I know Mother's Day yearly is extremely difficult for me for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. Knowing that that's true, I kind of hibernate for the, you know, three or four days prior. Yeah. Just conserve my energy. Make sure that I'm safe. Make sure that I have lots of self-care. Make sure that I have the food that I like. Make sure that I have time to sleep. Make sure that I'm not engaging with people that might trigger me more. I actually avoid other people's family events. Yeah. I decline. I say, no, it's, I'm okay. You know what I love about everything you're saying right now is you haven't said, you know, so I know when Mother's Day is coming up, I just remind myself it's no big deal. I shouldn't be this upset. I should just get over it. Like, it's only one day— you're not talking like you're fucked up for having a rough day that day. You're talking about, you know what? I'm going to have a rough day that day, and I'm going to prepare for it. And it's okay to have a rough day that day. Exactly. It's just yeah. matter of fact, and yeah. it's okay. Well, so that's just that I, I normalize having the rough day. I normalize suicidality. I normalize the acute depressive episode. Yeah. Uh, I normalize uh, having you know passive ideation, uh, active ideation. Yeah. We just have to normalize uh, conversations about suicide. Yes. And this is the great thing about when you normalize it and you have open conversations about it, you actually reduce the power that it has over you. Oh, yeah, for sure. So going back to the scaling for me, two and a half to three and a half, sometimes an eight or a seven or eight or a nine. Now my baseline suicidality is a zero. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I think that when we normalize things, we talk about things. When we talk about things, again, we feel less alone. Mm -hmm. Well, and you don't feel like a big freak if it's normal then you don't feel like stupid or yeah. there's something wrong with you. Yeah, what the fuck is wrong with me? I shouldn't even be here. I'm insane. Like, yeah. like whatever might be going through your head. It's now normal. Right. Uh, when I learned about the acute depressive episode, and that's how I understand my own suicidality, it really removed the power of suicide for me in so many ways. It was really amazing. Yeah. And when I teach 
uh, suicide prevention to people, and I share this with them, uh, a lot of people are like, wow, I've never heard of this before. This is amazing. Thank you. And I also have other people come up to me and say, yep, I knew about this. Thank you for sharing it. There's power in knowing what it is. Mm -hmm. So I went for so long in my life not even understanding that I had depression because it was never spoken of when I was growing up, you know, in in a very male-dominated household. We didn't talk about feelings. Not just that, a household that strove to look perfect. Yeah, right, right. Had to be perfect, you know. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, snap out of it. I mean, quit your crying. It, you know, that was the feedback that I always got. And now that I recognize what it is, the, the fact that I can say, hey, Mary, yeah, I'm definitely depressed today. I'm definitely depressed. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not ashamed of it. It's just a matter of fact. It's almost like saying, you know, I'm having cramps today or I'm feeling hungry. Yeah, I'm hungry. It's just this is where it's at. And this is what's going to happen. And just really take the fear out of it and the anxiety out of it. It's just, huh, today I'm depressed. Thank you for saying that, though. You're not minimizing it. You're just understanding it. And again, not being ashamed and actually being okay to talk about it mm. and finding people in my circle that I can say, you know what? I'm depressed today. I don't I don't want to whatever it is that they're asking. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that, Mary, you didn't feel like you were left out because I want to make sure that you address and we address any needs that you may have. I love the fact that, that Shelly looks to you as the even-keeled person. And I also know this, especially with suicide, we need to be sure that we're reaching out to the people that we consider strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need to reach out to the people that we consider to be the safe ones, to be the educators, to be the ones that know their stuff. I can't tell you how often I share that message on Facebook. Check in on your strong friends. How many people check in on me? Maybe one. Mm-hmm. And I consider myself the strong friend. Yeah. I'm a therapist now. I have to be the strong friend. Right. And I have moments where I need to be reached out to as well. Oh, good point. Good yeah, point. no, for sure. My moments are few and far between. I had one recently, a couple weeks ago, and it just kind of came out of the blue. Mm, yeah. I was just down. Were you surprised? Yeah, it had been a while. It had been a long time. Was there any fear associated with that? No, it wasn't felt. I didn't feel like that, that I would take any action steps. I just felt so down and that I was so blah that I really didn't care if I lived or died. It was, yeah. just, mm-hmm. it was just a bad day. I don't know what happened. I don't know if there was an incident that triggered it. I just had to sleep it off, basically. (laughs) The next day was like a fresh start, but I just couldn't shake it that entire day. Just this feeling like it doesn't matter if I'm here. I don't know. Just had a day. Can I reassure you that it matters tremendously whether you're here or not? Thank you. And I generally... I'm raising my hand in agreement. Yeah. Oh, 99.9% of the time, I believe that. I just had a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's actually pretty normal to have a bit day where you're like, ah, oh, geez, Louise, do I really want to do this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do I really want to be here? No, I don't. And I'm going to do it anyway. I was glad and grateful that Mary told me. Oh, yeah. You know, she didn't just hide it and get grouchy and snappy and have me go, what did I do? What did I do? Because I think that could happen pretty easily. But she she told me, you know what, Shelly, I was having an off day. And I tried cracking jokes and I tried my whole thing and it, you know, Finally, I realized, I'm like, that's not working for you, is it, Mary? She's like, no, no, the joking is not working for me. I'm just having a a bad day. But the fact that she would tell me that is great. How is anyone going to know how to help you if they have no idea that something wrong is happening? And I would think, and I could be wrong, that it's typically the even keel, the strong people who tend to not let on when they're having a shit day. Yeah, because you get this reputation of being the strong one. Mm -hmm. And I've actually gone through this with a past uh, girlfriend who couldn't handle it Mm. when I fell apart. She weren't allowed to have an off day. No. There's a lot of responsibility in that. Oh, yeah. And I knew that she wasn't safe. Mm. I couldn't trust her Mm -hmm. because I couldn't be myself completely. 
I wasn't allowed to have a bad day. Mm. I can't tell you how many of my close friends are really thrown if I'm having a bad day. Yeah. In fact, I think as I pursue uh, maybe romantic relationships or longer-term relationships with people, I'm going to look for those people that will let me be sad. Yes. Absolutely. Because if I can't be sad around you, I can't be my full self around you. No. Of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a lot of my problems with within my religion is I had to always look like things were perfect. I could never let my guard down and be like, I am miserable. This sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. And that's really what's expected. Yeah, for sure. And so again, when I'm kind of the comedian and the fun one and cheering everyone else up, when I have a really bad day, and I think, again, that's why I don't want to talk to anyone, but I need to remember I do have people that I can have my bad day with, that they don't expect me to entertain them, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. I do have a question about being the partner of someone who goes through this fairly regularly. That's me. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally, I see the signs. There's the like excessive nap taking. There's can we make eye contact? That whole thing that we talked about. There was a time fairly recently where I just felt tapped out that day. Mm. Like I did not have the capacity to... Whatever you needed, I think yeah. back scratches or head rubs or whatever it was. So your trough met her trough in that same moment of lowness. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. Dead. Yes. Yeah. What is the best thing to do in that moment? Stay away from shame and guilt and lashing out in um, desperation. Yeah. Uh, maybe turning to the person's safety plan and saying, hey, Shelly, today is that day I can't help you. Uh, can I help you find someone else that can help you? Mm-hmm. You know, because you will have had a list, a safety plan with at least three other people she can ask for help. Mm-hmm. Well, I like the idea that there's more than one person on her list. So if I just am like at level E on empty, you know, my tank is drained, mm-hmm. that um, we can maybe refer to somebody else that day. Yeah, that makes me feel better, too, because I do get that. She doesn't put the guilt on me. I self-guilt when I feel like I brought her down. Mm -hmm. And to have a plan of like, you know what, I don't actually have to ever feel that because she will let me know, like, Shelly, okay, who's this one on your list? Let's let's give this person a chance to be helpful to you. And I don't have to beat myself up for feeling like, well, now I'm ruining my girlfriend's life too. Yes. That will help in our relationship as well. Well, I was just going to say, you guys have such healthy communication skills that you're kind of modeling uh, a really good space to be in as far as being partners that care about each other. Well, thank you. We do care about each other a we little do. bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm serious. Yeah. You you, you model a very healthy relationship. Now, I don't see everything that you guys do, and I don't want to, but you know, you've shared a lot with me, and I, I just want to share that back with you that I see an incredibly healthy relationship with incredibly beautiful uh, methods of communication. Thank you for recognizing that. We're pretty much able to talk about everything. I yeah, think. yeah, for sure. Yeah, We talk about everything. Uh, life goals. Latter-day lesbian <laughs> listeners, this is a life goal. Aww, you're sweet. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Aww, yeah. Thank you. This has been so enlightening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I want to make sure that people understand that what we did today is not a full QPR presentation. It's not. Uh, QPR takes a minimum of 60 minutes. Roughly around 90 minutes is a good length for a QPR session. I like 90 minutes to two hours because I like a lot of role play and I like to give participants a chance to, to do the, the hard questions mm-hmm. and then to process why it's hard to ask the hard question. Mm-hmm. I like to dive into, especially if I'm doing LGBTQ specific 
suicide prevention education, I like to dive into some of the increased risk factors that queer people have, mm-hmm. specifically the increased, increased risk factors that trans people have. And so July 12th at 7 p.m., we're going to do a, a full-blown QPR, suicide education and prevention seminar online via Zoom with a Sacramento group of individuals that I've met here Um, We're going to make this open to clinicians, to individuals, to anyone who would like to attend. Um, Certainly, this will will be a church-safe environment, I hope, to make it. Uh, There are some considerations when talking about Mormonism or religion in general that add to suicidality, and there's data about that, and I hope that people aren't offended that could attend, that aren't, they won't be offended by this. I'm just presenting data and information. It's something to be aware of. But yeah, we're going to do at least 90 minutes, hopefully maybe two hours, a QPR session on July 12th at 7 p.m. We strongly recommend people join that, but if they can't, it'll also be recorded. Is that right? And available afterward. That'll be on YouTube. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay, great. And we can put a link potentially to that uh, session in our show notes. Mm-hmm. Right? And I will obviously blast it all over social media. There you go. Kimberly, I love you so much. Yeah. I really, really do. I think you are such a fantastic human, and mm-hmm. I am so honored to have you in my life for real. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I love that we can grab you as a resource, and you are always so excited and ready to help people. And so informed. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting. I don't know if I'm interesting, but I am informed. Well, even if you were boring as fuck, we'd still have you on the show. (laughs) And you make a mean martini. (laughs) 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 I'm okay with owning that. That's right. That's part of my recovery. Uh, Right on. And you have an airstream. I think that's really cool, actually. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> How many miles to the gallon do you get on that puppy is what I want so to know. So it's something you have to tow. Oh, yeah, okay. I can't drive it around. But when I'm towing it, I get about 12 miles per gallon in my big Dodge truck. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I want to make sure we talk about before we end tonight is this idea that at some point you will probably lose someone to suicide that you're close to. Yeah. Uh, so please, if you have lost someone to suicide, there are suicide survivor groups that you can join. Mm-hmm. Uh, please don't succumb to the internal shaming or the internal guilting. That will be so, so easy to fall into because that person is no longer there. You will have questions that will be unanswerable. Yeah. You will have questions that may incite rage. You will have questions that may incite suicidality in your own self. And we do know this, that if someone has lost someone to suicide, their risk of suicide actually increases. Mm -hmm. So that's something to be aware of, that if you have someone in your circle that's died by suicide, you need to take it a little more seriously uh, because your risk is also increased. Wow. Wow. Thanks for the chance to share some important information. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Kimberly, we love you. Thank you so much. We love you. Promise us you'll come on again and we can talk more because I learned so much and so do our listeners. And by the way, our listeners love you, not just because you're fun and exciting and sexy and all the great things, um, but they love what you have to say. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I hope that what I have to share is um, something that's helpful and beneficial for people. Absolutely. Oh, how much do you love Kimberly Anderson? She's great. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I love her so much. That was that was fantastic. Yeah. So informative. Um, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to get into a little bit more about the listener of ours who died by suicide mm-hmm. recently. We found out through her girlfriend writing to us, right? And uh, we want to read her letter. And big time warning here. Big yeah. time warning. They are jarring. Mm-hmm. They are very real. Yeah, we're. Reading a letter from someone who has passed on. Yes. Um, so 
Be prepared. Don't go into it lightly. Maybe listen with a friend. If this is something that you think will trigger you, skip it. Yeah, Just skip turn it, it off now. Mm-hmm. Um, but be prepared. This is not an easy listen. No. It's pretty heartbreaking. It is. Okay. Be right back. We're back. Hi. Hello. So we received a letter, a couple of letters from Charlie. Charlie is the young woman who died by suicide mm-hmm. recently. She was living in a very patriarchal, very strict religious Mormon household in Utah and couldn't wait to leave, actually. I just want to read an excerpt from her original letter to us. We actually featured her letter in uh, one of our letters episodes, number 18. If you are inclined, you can go back and listen to it. Here's the excerpt I wanted to read. Knowing that when my extended family inevitably finds out I'm gay, they will see me as that girl who strayed from the light. And I don't think I will be able to face them. I'm sure they'll be reasonably nice, but I will know that they're judging my every move, and that just really hurts. As soon as I graduate high school, I'm going to move out and leave this stupid state of Utah. And I hope then that I could get somewhat of a fresh start. I'm currently still going to church every week, and even though I don't believe a word of it, everyone still thinks I'm a good Mormon girl. So that was from Charlie. Mm-hmm. And then we heard from Anna, her Anna's girlfriend. Her girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. Anna says, My girlfriend and I have been listening to you over the course of this year. I met her in church. She always talked about you guys and how much she wanted to meet you again. We live in Utah, a.k.a. Mormon Central, so it was always tough for her to express her sexuality. In fact, she and I snuck around because she wasn't out. She died by suicide yesterday, and I'm not sure why I'm talking to you guys about it. Perhaps it's that thing where when you listen to someone for so long, it's kind of like you have a connection, but you don't actually. We live in a time where homophobia is so real that some people would rather die than to be themselves. But I saw the difference this podcast made in her and how much it made her feel less alone and valid. I just think she would have wanted you guys to know how much this podcast and your words meant to her. To know she wasn't the only one being suppressed from Mormonism, that other people feel this way. She wrote to you guys once, and when you replied, she didn't stop talking about it for a whole month. Her name was Charlie, and she was beautiful and perfect and flawed. And despite her issues, I loved her. I still love her. She said once we moved out from our parents' house, she would start a podcast similar to yours. It's funny, really, how the alienation just from family and society can push you to the edge. Thanks for spreading awareness and making girls like her and I feel more loved and valid. Sorry if this was morbid or strange. I'm just not sure what I'm doing anymore. I'm just trying to stay connected to everything that she loved, to feel closer to her. I wish she could have had the chance to be someone. I hope she isn't forgotten. Anna. Charlie will never be forgotten. No. And Anna, you are not alone. No. And we wanted to dedicate this episode to Charlie. Yeah. And to Anna Mm -hmm. for writing in and letting us know. Oh, this makes me really sad. Yeah. Shelly. Yeah. I just feel really sad right now. 
And I hate to end on a bummer. I really do. I'm not trying to do that. I just think this is the reality of often growing up in these super strict religious households that put so much pressure on young people. I think it's good that we have information from people like Kimberly who can help us and our listeners recognize how to help someone that they think might be having some trouble, you know? Yeah, I'm just sad. And let's just all try to do better and to listen more and to love more and to be more kind and to just care harder, you know? Yeah, let's lift each other up, everybody. Let's do that. That's all I have. That's all I have, too. I guess we'll just end it on that note. Sounds good. We'll talk to everybody next week. Bye. Bye.